I'm very pleased to say that at the start of the war there were 44 British babies that were due to be born um, and every single one of them is now safely home with their parents. It's been a long year but we worked with all those families and yeah there's been kind of good outcomes for everybody. Hello and welcome to the Resolution podcast. This afternoon we are discussing the law of surrogacy and we are joined by Andrew Powell and Natalie Gamble. Andrew, can I come to you first? Could you tell us a bit about yourself and why it is you are drawn to this area of law? Thank you for having me on this afternoon. I, I was, I'm a barrister at 4PB and I was called in 2008. I'm a member of Resolution. I also sit on the Resolution Children's Committee. And surrogacy has always stood out for me as an interesting area because I came to law in a very odd way. I didn't read law at university. I planned to, it didn't quite work out with my A-levels. So I went off and read anthropology, social anthropology, and was really interested in kinship and different aspects of how family life is recognised legally. And so there were lots of my courses as an undergraduate about new reproductive technologies and how that's kind of reshaped family forms and how often the law doesn't necessarily catch up with these new family forms. And so that's kind of how I, my interest into it kind of came about. And so now I've been probably doing surrogacy related cases for the last decade or so. And in 2014, so nine years ago, I spent three or four months in Los Angeles shadowing attorneys at a law firm that specialise in surrogacy and fertility law, having received a Pegasus scholarship. So I also do other aspects of family law, well, only children, but this is a, a decent part of it, I, I would say. And Natalie, thank you for taking time out to join us. Could, could I ask you the same thing? Can you tell us a bit about yourself, although I suspect most listeners will know a bit about you and why you're drawn to this type of law? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm a solicitor and I practice exclusively in the area of fertility law. Um, and most of the work we do is surrogacy cases, but we also help parents building families through other types of assisted reproduction as well. And I got into it very much through a, my own personal journey. I've got two kids as a same-sex parent with my wife. Um, my daughter's now 20. <laughs> but when we were building our family, obviously the law was very different and less inclusive than it is now. So we had to kind of navigate new paths through things to make the law work for our family. And I started helping other people from there. So NGA Law was founded in 2009, where I lead a wonderful, passionate team. Everybody kind of cares so much about what we do. Um, and we both help individual families, but we also do a lot of policy work and campaigning work to change the law and make it work in a, a more progressive way. And in 2013, with my business partner, Helen, um, we founded Brilliant Beginnings, which is one of the UK's four non-profit surrogacy agencies. So through Brilliant Beginnings, we also manage the practicalities of ethical surrogacy journeys, both here in the UK and in the US. So I have a kind of perspective, not just of the legal stuff, but of some of the practical issues as well. And I, I really I love surrogacy. I live and breathe it. I believe in it very passionately, but also you know want to make sure that it's done in a really good, solid, ethical, legal way. So I'm really delighted to be here and to be invited. And thank you. Oh, brilliant. You sound like the absolutely ideal people to be talking to. I guess it would help before we start if you could just sort of set, set the ground for us a little bit and explain 
What is meant by surrogacy and why is it that the family court becomes involved at all? So surrogacy is where a woman carries a pregnancy for a, a couple or a single parent who aren't able to carry a pregnancy themselves. Um, so it might be a single dad or a gay male couple. It might be a heterosexual couple who've had difficulties conceiving or can't carry a pregnancy for a number of different reasons. But the, the essence of it really is that shared intention between everybody that the surrogate is not going to be a parent of the child that she carries and that she is doing that for someone else. Um, and the reason that the family court gets involved is because that assignment of parenthood doesn't happen automatically when the child is born. And there is a court process that the intended parents have to go through to become the child's legal parents. Um, and that also means lots of other legal issues around what happens in the limbo period before legal parent has, has been properly transferred, particularly in international surrogacy cases where parents are needing to cross borders with newborn children. And there may be complexities around nationality and so on at that stage of things. Andrew, as I understand it, the law of surrogacy is developing quite quickly via the common law. So is this a case that the judiciary are trying to patch up issues with the legislation? Yes, in, is the short answer. I suppose the context needs to be set for listeners, that there's a statutory framework that governs this area, and Nathalie's already kind of alluded to it. But Section 54 of the Human Fertilisation and Embryology Act 2008 is the legal framework that sets out the statutory requirement for people or an individual to apply for a parental order. And the parental order is the bespoke order that is designed for children born via surrogacy. So it, it operates in a very similar way to an adoption order in that it extinguishes the birth parent or parents if she's if a surrogate's married, it extinguishes their legal status as a parent and transfers it to the intended parent or parents. But it's very different to an adoption order in that the parental order is reflecting what was intended, whereas an adoption order is um, replacing parenthood for whatever reason, for you know, a child placed for adoption. And parental orders were created in 1990, following the Warnock report. And they were obviously created at a time where surrogacy wasn't very popular. And of course, in 1990, it was only available for married couples. Of course, in 1990, only married heterosexual couples could get married in any event. And the 2008 Act widened the eligibility for who could apply for it. So you could have same-sex male couples who are in a civil partnership, and of course now in a same-sex marriage, as well as people in an enduring family relationship. One of the things which I think has really fractured the statutory framework was a tiny bit in section 54 that says you have to apply for the parental order within six months of the child being born. Prior to 2014, it had always been thought that if you don't apply within six months, you were effectively stopped, prevented from applying for the parental order. And in fact, there was a case in 2013 where Eleanor Kingjay, as she then was, basically said, you know, you applied too late, you don't qualify for the parental order. But in 2014, there's a case called Rex, where the then president of the family division, Sir James Mumby, had before him an application for a parental order where all of the criteria were met. And the only issue that hadn't been met was that it was made out of time. So it's over the six month time limit. 
And he went and looked at this and basically said, having basically agreed with what the advocates had said quite properly, that you know Parliament could have intended it to be such that a child would be effectively be discriminated against by a, an arbitrary bar, and there didn't appear to be anything in the kind of parliamentary discussions you know, in Hansard that gave a basis for explaining why there was this arbitrary six-month figure. So what Sir James Munby did was to read down the statute, so basically to apply Section 3 of the Human Rights Act to ensure that it was compatible with the ECHR principles. And he basically said, you know, you, you, know, you can apply after six months if certain criteria are met. And I think that case represents a major watershed because I think after that case, you start seeing loads of other cases where the statute says this, but actually judges have done, I think Natalie coined this phrase, which I think is great, but a lot of judicial acrobatics where there's all this jumping around to try and fix, fix the problem. So the other area where we see problems, for example, is what an, what an enduring family relationship means. And one might think at first blush that that means that that could only be, for example, people who are cohabiting, who just don't happen to be married or in a civil partnership. But there have been cases where there have been two individuals who have been effectively in a platonic relationship, and that has qualified as an, as an enduring relationship. Or there have been issues, for example, with the meaning of the word home. The Act says that when you apply for the parental order, and when the court makes the order, the child's home has to be with the applicant or applicants. And I've been cases where there have been parents who have been separated by pandemics, by war, by whatever re for whatever reason, and the child's home hasn't been with both of them. But the court has applied Article 8 type principles to say that the word home, for example, has to be construed purposively. So you've got to give it the broadest possible interpretation. And in all of this, what the court is trying to do, and all of these cases tend to come before high court judges, they're trying to put a, a sticking plaster on a problem to make sure that the child has the best, has the optimum legal status with his or her parents. Because ultimately, and it's something which Mrs. Justice Tice said, speaking extrajudicially a few years ago, was that the court isn't concerned about children who are the subjects of parental orders. It's concerned about the children who are not subject of parental orders because of the transformative effect that it affords. I think perhaps that's probably best demonstrated by a case, I think last year, where you know you had somebody who was the subject of a parental order and they were in their 20s. And that's how late the application was made and the court still made the order. And that just demonstrates how you know the courts are basically trying to fix it where they can. And I, I guess this kind of comes down to the, the history of how the law came about. In that it's not like there was a big policy review in the 80s or 90s looking at surrogacy and how the law should support it and a big discussion about it in Parliament. It was almost completely forgotten about when the bill was going through. And it was only because a, a backbench MP raised a case that he had involving some constituents who, if this law that was going through that would make the woman who gives birth the legal mother of the child, would put them in a position where they were going to have to adopt their own biological children who were the twins that were being expected to be born. And so they added parental orders as an amendment to the bill at the very kind of last minute. And there was almost no parliamentary debate on the detail. And at the time, surrogacy was incredibly rare and there was a lot of kind of worry about arrangements might commonly be disputed. You know, what if money's involved? We don't really like the feel of that. So it wasn't a very kind of evidence-based approach 
to kind of how surrogacy would work it was very much let's scribble some stuff down on the back of an envelope and the judges are you know really well aware of that so they want to get to that outcome where the child who is you know biologically connected with the parents and living in the home and being raised by those parents and that's what everybody wants and there's no dispute that child should be the legal child of those parents so if there is a way to interpret the legislation to enable that to be the outcome which it's very clear is the right outcome morally and from a welfare perspective they will do that but there has been you know a lot of flexibility in terms of the interpretation of almost every one of the criteria so we end up in a situation kind of 25 years later where you've got statute that says one thing but actually almost every single one of the criteria you can say well it says that but actually and it says that but actually and you know you're distilled down to a, a you know a much smaller list of what the requirements actually are and i think that's where there is this very strong move at the moment for the law to be updated and modernized to reflect that so you were talking, Andrew, about the, the case of Z, which was one where the court, I think the only family law case where the court made a declaration of incompatibility under the Human Rights Act. Am I right in thinking that the proposed Bill of Rights is going to repeal Section 3 of the Human Rights Act, um, which is the part that enables the court to read and give effect to legislation in a way that's compatible with the European Convention. And does that leave you concerned in this particular area of law where the court is having to be so creative in its interpretation of the of the statutes? Yeah, so um, I think just for the listeners' benefit, Rezed number two was a case where it was a single man applying for a parental order and in reason number one it came before Sir James Mumby a year I think it was about a year after reason sorry after re-ex the um time limit case and in reason number one at that point you couldn't apply a single person couldn't apply for a parental order and he met all of the criteria and they were trying to invite the court to read down the statute a bit like re-ex to say well you've got to kind of read in words to say that when the act says applicants to apply it should also mean applicant and the court wasn't prepared to do that because I think the court thought it would be driving and coaching horses through the statute so along comes reason number two where it's an application for declaration of incompatibility to basically say that the statute is incompatible with human rights and so at that on that basis the court did make the declaration and in fact I recall having been in it very briefly for the child that the court the government rather who obviously were, were respondent to it they conceded that as an incompatibility not on the basis of article 8 but on the basis of on the basis of article 14 um, because they were basically saying you can still adopt a child so there isn't an interference with family life but there is an element of discrimination so the declaration was made and then the remedial order that comes following a declaration came about three years later in 2019, and then it changed changed it. I have to say, I try and stay out of reading too much of politics at the moment. And that being said, I'm aware <laughs> there's, a, there's this proposal to try and have this new Bill of Rights. And it is concerning that there would be a potential risk of removing the provisions of Section 3 of the Human Rights Act, because... Although Rez number two is the only um, case, family case, where there's been a declaration of incompatibility, 
it is a remedy which is really important in my view of being able to hold government to account and the whole purpose of the 1998 act which brought in the ECHR in 2000 to be incorporated into our domestic law the whole purpose was to broaden rights it was to give the citizen the ability to challenge the state and in my view it's quite concerning that it'd be basically be trying to constrict it and although there hasn't been an, another declaration within family cases there are often other cases that are allied or related to the work we do as family lawyers where it might be relevant and so when you look at something like surrogacy and, and new reproductive technologies and assisted reproduction the whole area has changed so quickly the landscape has changed so quickly and in my view there has to be some available remedy that gives the individual the right to say this isn't wrong it, this isn't right it's, it's it's incompatible and I think the case where it was used I can think of that as you but it was used recently unsuccessfully but still at least it was used I think it was in the McConnell case where that concerned the trans man who was pregnant and he gave birth to a child he had a gender recognition certificate that declared him to be a man and his claim for judicial, judicial review was to say that there should be a, a birth certificate that should have father or parent on it not mother and I think he also brought a claim for a declaration of incompatibility that was incompatible with human rights. And the case didn't go the way he wanted it to go, but it, nevertheless, it gives it, it gives him a route. It gives the individual a route to kind of ventilate those those concerns. And so, I think anything that's constrictive of rights fundamentally it's problematic. And so, I think in this area where for we, us as family lawyers, but it doesn't happen very often, it's still a tool that should be there for for the litigant, for the citizen, basically. And I guess, I mean, this is a, an area of law where it shows quite how important these powers are for the judiciary, because, you know, making legislative change for these sorts of issues that affect a very small number of people is always incredibly slow, and it doesn't happen for, you know, maybe once every 40 or 50 years. But the pace at which the structures of families are changing and evolving is much, much faster. So if the judges don't have a mechanism by which they can apply the law flexibly and enable it to be brought up to date, the effect of that is that children are being left in a discriminated against position and their welfare needs not being met. And I think we would all agree that, you know, no newborn child should be left in a position of legal insecurity. So, you know, there's never any disagreement in these cases about what the right outcome is. It's just about how we get to that result. And I think, you know, it, the powers in the Human Rights Act are absolutely essential to give that flexibility and enable the law to be dynamic and evolving in the way that you know everybody would want it to be. Yes, you said there's never any disagreement in these cases. Is that completely right? Is there, is there sometimes scope for disagreement, particularly around areas like consent? Um, oh, it's the classic question, isn't it? If I ever kind of jump in a taxi and say, oh, yes, I practice in surrogacy law, yeah. the, the taxi driver will say, oh, does it, does this, are you always dealing with disputes? Does the surrogate want to keep the baby? I mean, um, I, and I every... suppose that's, that's why I'm asking it, because I'm the one who doesn't know on this podcast. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, I can I can tell you that of the thousands of surrogacy cases I've dealt with in the last 15 years, um, in contrast, there's been maybe two or three cases where there's been a dispute. So it's a tiny, tiny fraction. And it's, 
you know, I think it's about understanding the mentality of surrogates that it's, you know, this isn't a woman who's deciding to carry a pregnancy and then deciding to give up her child for someone else. This is somebody who goes into an arrangement in order to carry a child for someone else. And that's the kind of the focus that the amazing women that become surrogates have in terms of helping somebody to, to create a family. You know, they're usually mums who've got their own kids. They, you know, value that bond and that privilege of having been able to do it and they want to help someone else. So it's, you know, very, very uncommon to see disputes happen. But I think the the kind of sense of uncertainty in surrogacy arrangements in the UK, despite the fact that everybody knows these things happen very rarely, affects everybody that's involved very, very profoundly. So, you know, intended parents very often choose to go overseas for surrogacy. And I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, I know the risk of a surrogate changing her mind in the UK is very small, but this is my child. I'm not going to take that risk. So they go overseas to other countries. And sometimes that all goes very smoothly, but sometimes that causes all sorts of other legal complications as well. On the flip side, it's also a massive issue for surrogates because, you know, their intention and their commitment is not recognised by the law. So they go into a surrogacy arrangement and will often say, well, what if the intended parents change their mind? You know, I'm going to be stuck with a responsibility for this child that isn't mine. So, you know, it's a big deterrent to surrogacy. It's something that causes anxiety in that relationship. And I think, you know, that the essence of a good ethical surrogacy arrangement is, you know, a good, strong relationship between everybody. And that is what we see, you know, but where the law is, instead of kind of recognising everybody's intentions and supporting them, actively undermining them and creating this kind of anxiety, this uncertainty, um, it's almost, you know, trying to create difficulties. And it's, you know, I think if we had law that was much more supportive, it would even, you know, those very rare cases where there are disputes would be reduced even further. So uh, sort of following on from that really, one one aspect of the law that is unusual, I guess, is, is the fact that actual commercial arrangements for surrogacy are illegal, or it's illegal to be involved in them. Do you think that's also part of the problem? I mean, that's certainly one of the reasons why people choose to go overseas, isn't it? Because they can how they can enter into a contractually binding arrangement in California, for instance, and have that certainty that everything's going to be going to be accounted for. Do, do would would it help if it, if commercial surrogacy was legalized in this country, or 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 is that not really the problem? I think again, this is one of those kind of big issues around surrogacy that kind of captures people's emotions. And it's actually a really complex question because the kind of first part of that is, well, what are you talking about when you're talking about commercial surrogacy? Are you talking about allowing the people who facilitate and arrange surrogacy, the third parties, if you like, to do it on a profit making basis? Because that's the bit that's not legal in the UK. Or are you talking about it being OK to reimburse surrogates for more than just their expenses and for them to receive an element of compensation? And I think when most people in kind of layman's language are talking about commercial surrogacy, it's the latter they're talking about rather than the former. In fact, under UK law, it's not illegal currently to pay a surrogate more than expenses. And actually, there's a very, very loose kind of customary practice around how surrogacy works in the UK, where most people will agree a sum at the outset of a surrogacy arrangement that, you know, perhaps broadly relates to expenses, but it also relates to what everyone else does and what people think is fair. And it's a very kind of general approach. So there's not a kind of strict accountability in terms of expenses only and receipts and that kind of thing. 
So sometimes the gap between what's happening in the UK and what's happening overseas is not quite as large as people think it is. But it is about, you know, the way it's approached and how transparent the approach is. And, you know, it's certainly the case that there is a, a, a better availability of women coming forward to be surrogates in the countries that have more liberal frameworks. And I think it's that, in a sense, probably more than the kind of, you know, very plain issue of do we allow commercial surrogacy or do do we not that is what drives people to go overseas so we did some research with Cambridge University back in 2018 to look at the motivations of parents going overseas for surrogacy because it's an area that there was very little research into um, and the two big drivers that were sending people to to choose overseas arrangements rather than UK arrangements was firstly um, the lack of a, a kind of certain process and availability of surrogates in the UK. So the, the fact that, you know, you might find a surrogate tomorrow, you might never find a surrogate, you know, it, there's a lot of uncertainty and at the same time, a lot of shortage of surrogates in the UK. And secondly, the lack of legal certainty. So this idea that the arrangements were risky here. So, you know, people are being attracted to, you know, arrangements that, you know, feel much more secure, both in terms of the time frame before which they'll be able to proceed, but also then through the arrangement itself. And I think, you know, those are the, the questions we need to address in terms of, you know, do we want to encourage safe regulated surrogacy in the UK? And if we really do, do we want to kind of open up the rules to reflect what's already happening on the ground, but a bit more openly? So, you know, there are more opportunities for people to enter into surrogacy arrangements here and they're not having to go overseas. Or do we stick with this kind of fantasy that we only allow altruistic surrogacy in the UK and it's, you know, no money ever changes hands, which really isn't the reality. I would just add, I, I agree with what Natalie said in relation to certainty that that is a, often the, a really big driver when you speak to lay clients about why they've gone abroad. I agree it's a really complex question because you have to look at it how you're breaking it down and you often hear and because there's a bit of a self-selecting pool because at the moment you can only have surrogates who are altruistic and so those that come forward and comment on it say well we wouldn't want to be paid and that's their that's their view they wouldn't want to be be remunerated from a commercial perspective and so it's difficult to say how it would play out but I think looking at, I'm sorry we'll, we'll come on to this, but I don't think there's going to be any significant change in that for the foreseeable future. I don't think that's anything the Law Commission would want to touch. But certainly from the cases I've seen, when people go abroad to jurisdictions where there is a, a more clarity and more certainty, it's often cited that, you know, I don't have any certainty if I do it here. You have somebody in, say, for example, the US, who is freely doing this, they enjoy, they enjoy what they do, and they want to be paid for it. Everybody knows, knows where they stand, there's an equilibrium. That for some people just seems much more appealing because it's from their perspective, it's much more straightforward and they can see an endpoint. I think the one thing I would perhaps also add from the commercial perspective is that during the time I spent in Los Angeles, what I saw was, was that there was this sense of equality because you had a surrogate who was represented by her own attorney the intended parents represented by their own attorney and it was much more tr transactional in terms of their contractual obligations so you had the intended parents attorney calling the surrogate's attorney going I think we should put this in the contract for her benefit and vice versa 
as a much more collaborative way of working. And so it might seem to be quite crude, but it's happening and it and everybody knows where they stand. And so, you know, it's all about regulation, isn't it? And I think in those jurisdictions where you have that, that works well. I think the difficulty becomes where you have emerging markets from possibly from low-income countries where there's less regulation slash no regulation and that's where it can get a bit murky but certainly in jurisdictions you know such as america where everyone knows where they stand it kind of makes sense yeah i would absolutely totally agree with that and i think you know when you're having this conversation about kind of commercial surrogacy it's about well what's what's the worry here what is it that we're concerned about and i think you know really at the core of this it's the the sense that a woman who's vulnerable might be incentivized to do something against her better judgment or because she doesn't feel she has enough choice or she's not given enough information. So it's about, you know, is there a fair balance of power in the relationship? You know, are the intermediaries that are involved, you know, screening and safeguarding and protecting people and, you know, or are they just the kind of brokers that are doing things in, in not an ethical way? And it's very different in different places in terms of how surrogacy operates. But I think any a new law framework that we would have in the UK is bound to be, and rightly so, very focused on putting the right safeguards in place to make sure that everyone is properly informed, that everyone is supported, that no one is being exploited or, or taken advantage of. Because at the core of surrogacy, there should be a really strong, direct relationship between the parties. And where professionals are involved, they should be kind of on the outside of that relationship, but supporting it and enabling kind of communication to flow and making sure that everyone's rights are protected. Um, and that's when surrogacy works very well. And, you know, we do see a lot of very, very good practice. But I think we should all both, you know, within the UK law reform here, but also internationally, be looking at how we can introduce those safeguards to make sure that that is how it always happens. Just so that I can understand, what, what sort of numbers are we talking about? I mean, I appreciate not all arrangements would pass through the courts, but is there a sense of what sort of numbers we're talking about, I guess, that end up in parental orders and court cases and, and those that don't? Yeah, I mean, the, the only official statistics that we have are from the numbers of parental orders that are granted. And those are quite interesting because, I mean, what they show is firstly that surrogacy has grown very significantly over the last 10 to 15 years, both within the UK and internationally. Um, they also give a picture of the breakdown. So, you know, we're looking at about around about 400 parental orders granted per year over the last few years. And those are split almost completely equally between people staying in the UK and people going abroad. And of those going abroad, the majority go to the destinations where there is established law on surrogacy and mainly the US. But there are, you know, a smaller number of parents who go to other destinations where it's it's less well regulated. Now, in terms of, you know, are there lots of surrogacy cases happening outside of the people who are applying for parental orders? That's the unknown that kind of none of us can really. There's, I mean, there's no way of measuring that. But my perception just in terms of you know the inquiries that get in touch and you know people that you know we're in contact with on a daily basis is I think that number has gone down very significantly I think in the past a lot of people were going to places like surrogacy in India um, India closed its doors in 2015 to foreign intended parents and I think there's much more awareness now the judges have been very keen to say it's really important that you apply for a parental order I think there's more confidence in the system because there haven't really been any cases where orders haven't been granted so I, I don't get a strong sense that there's a lot of people doing surrogacy and not applying for parental orders. 
I, I would also just echo what Nathalie said, and I think Nathalie would have obviously have a better feel for it on the ground with day-to-day inquiries. But certainly what I observed, I guess, eight years ago or so, was post the Rex case, where Sir James Mumby said, not didn't say, but the outcome of that case was that a late application could be entertained, was that I had a couple of cases that then came out of the woodwork, where it was, you know, we went to X country in 2008, 2009, didn't realise, but we read in the news in the newspaper that you could apply for it. But, you know, we've been exercising, you know, de facto parental responsibility for the last six years because we had a red book, we had a birth certificate from X country and nobody really questioned it. We better apply for parental order. I had quite a few of those at that point and they, those have just really died off now. So I think that must be right, that, it, you know, the, the people are aware of it and they tend to, you know, they know it's it's for their protection because there's a legal instability if you don't have that order that will only really make things difficult when you least expect it or when you least need it. Uh, I think we've, we've touched on law reform and this is an area that seems to be ripe for reform and the fact that the courts are, are sort of modifying the law as, as they go along suggests that that's the case and it's, it's something that's been subject of a, a law commission review which as far as I know is still ongoing do you want to talk about the progress of that where you think the the law commission have got to and whether even when they do report there's any likelihood any appetite in government actually to to implement change I think we've got to be optimistic haven't we (laughs) Um, the law commission started uh, a review in 2018 and it was initially a three-year project but it's been extended a couple of times because I think rightly they've done their job incredibly thoroughly. They've talked to an awful lot of people. They produced an enormous consultation report. I think it was nearly 400 pages um, and had a very, very high number of responses as well. So they have, to be very fair to them, had an awful lot of work to do. Um, And we can sense the direction of travel, obviously, from the provisional proposals that were published for the consultation in 2019. And there is certainly a focus on improving the system for parents through UK surrogacy and surrogates here as well, so that um, there will be a mechanism for the right people to be recognised as the legal parents of the child from birth without having to go through a lengthy court process. Um, so there are certainly some very positive things in the recommendations. And I think they're very, you know, broadly, very consistently supported across the surrogacy community. In terms of the, the report, the final report is due to be published currently um, in spring 2023. Um, as I said, it's been the date's been pushed back a couple of times already. So we're all kind of crossing our fingers that um, that we will see the final report. But obviously it's then up to government to decide whether to you know, implement that and devote parliamentary time to it. Um, and it's one of those issues that affects a very small number of people in practice and kind of no one else really that will ever kind of come into contact with it. But it does seem to generate quite strong feelings about what people think surrogacy is, even if they don't have very much information about it. So it's, you know, it's not a dry, let's update the leasehold law type law commission project. It's one that I suspect will capture quite a lot of attention and media and so on. Um, So it will be interesting to see what happens when the the report is published. But um, the government asked the law commission to, you know, start the project. There's been you know, for many, many years in all these judgments, judges saying the law desperately needs to be reviewed. So I hope that that has kind of significant force in terms of, you know, the government doing something with the report once it is there. 
I think also it's one of those, and Natalie's alluded to this already, but in terms of the political landscape, it ought to really have cross-party support because any MP is going to have somebody in their constituent who could be impacted by surrogacy, either as an intended parent, a surrogate, you know, a family member. So it, from that perspective, it ought to be something which is appealing to look at. But the one thing I would say is that, you know, the remedial order, it took three years for the remedial order for the single person to be able to be applied for a parental order to come into force. And from that perspective, I just, that's, my, my, that's my concern. Of course, the Law Commission will be publishing a bill, a proposed new law with their report. So, you know, government has it, they're waiting, but, you know, the timing is, when you look at the kind of the parliamentary timetable, we're entering this kind of, you know, rat race to general election, and it's not necessarily something which parties want to focus on when there are other bigger issues, because it doesn't affect that many people. So, yeah, I think that is right, let's be optimistic, but, you know, I'm not necessarily thinking it will change in the next few months or so, because... Maybe... Maybe it won't be a bad thing if they push the date back a bit more and then we're the other side of a general election. So maybe. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, I, I really get the sense you're very sceptical about our politics at the moment, but obviously we're, we're straying from the topics of the uh, of the podcast. Look, when we first started talking about having you two on, the, the issue in Ukraine had just started because it was sometime last year that we were going to talk to you. And at that time, I wanted to ask the two of you about what, what had happened with children who were with, were with surrogates in Ukraine. I mean, obviously, it's now, it's now been a very long time, sadly. We're moving towards a year in the conflict. But what did happen with the, with the children that had been born to British families by via Ukraine surrogates did they did they manage to come home safely as far as you know where their issues so this was my 2022 so (laughs) I don't think our team have ever worked quite so hard but um we volunteered to help the parents who were expecting children um in to be born in Ukraine when the war broke out which was obviously kind of unexpected and you know such a such a stressful situation to be in and you know for babies on its way it's on its way you can't kind of defer it and you know there were all sorts of issues with you know surrogates leaving Ukraine and being in other countries you know surrogates who weren't in Ukraine who were in very difficult areas parents having to kind of get to their babies to to rescue them and you know being very worried about their surrogates as well and so we worked with a government who were actually incredibly supportive on this um, and they did a, a number of really great things so they first of all agreed to issue visas to any surrogates who were pregnant um, who wanted to to come to the UK and those visas were the very first visas to be granted to Ukraine refugees this was even before the Homes for Ukraine scheme um, so we had a number of parents who you know welcomed their surrogates with their children and, and families as well to come to the UK and some of those surrogates have stayed so that some of those stories were absolutely incredible and then for other parents it was very much about you know helping them you know if the surrogates didn't want to leave to you know get to Ukraine and get documents to get their children out as quickly as possible or to get to whichever country that the surrogate had gone to if she'd left and settled somewhere else so it was a very very kind of complex picture of different cases you know the most difficult ones were you know the surrogates that were in the east of Ukraine often in Russian controlled territory and not able to leave but I'm very pleased to say that at the start of the war, there were 44 British babies that were due to be born. Um, and every single one of them is now safely home with their parents. 
So we it's been a long year, but we worked with all those families. And yeah, there's been kind of good outcomes for everybody. Wow, well done you. That's yeah. Amazing good news in a in a horrible situation. You two are so passionate about this area of law and so familiar with it. And um sounds like maybe a bit of a, a bit of a long wait for significant law reform through the through the law commission uh, and the government afterwards but if there was one thing that you could change two things at a push but if there was one thing that you could change uh, about the law relating to surrogacy and the way it works what what would that be i think a really obvious one and i don't think it's been i think it's been raised at the law commission but i, I don't think they're going to entertain it, is to have an equivalent list of countries where if you go through surrogacy in that country, it's automatically recognised in this jurisdiction. That doesn't happen currently. It happens with, with adoption. There are various routes for, obviously, for adoption orders made in another, another jurisdiction to be recognised here. It can be done at common law, it can be done under the Hague Convention, or it can be done under the designated list. And the designated list is quite, for adoption, is quite a straightforward list. It's a list of countries. The, the first one, I think, was in the 1970s, and the most recent one was updated in 2013, 2014. And it's a list where the Home Secretary has to satisfy themselves that the adoption process in that country is equivalent to what we have here, and there are appropriate safeguards. And if at the time of the making of the adoption order in that country, say, for example, the USA is on that list, the adopters were habitually resident in this jurisdiction, so where they live in the in, in England and Wales or in the UK, is automatically recognised here. And all they have to do when they get back here is just send off the adoption papers to the Registrar General, who will then produce the adoption certificate here. So that there's no need for them to go through a court process. And I think there could be an equivalent list for children born via surrogacy in other jurisdictions, and it would operate in the same way. So the Home Secretary would have to satisfy herself that that particular country had decent safeguards, had an appropriate way of ensuring that there was no exploitation and so on. And that would then prevent um, intended parents having to come back to this jurisdiction and then have to go through a court process, which, you know, in your straightforward cases, isn't, isn't difficult, but it is an interference that is unnecessary when you've been through, depending on their particular profile, they may have gone through all sorts to become parents, whether it's through like miscarriage, IVF, and, and then they have to apply to the High Court to be recognised as parents. And so I think that would be a really easy solution. Um, and of course, the list can grow or the list can change, can be amended if the Home Secretary doesn't think a particular country should be on that list or another should be added because their safeguards are better. But I think that would be a really easy route to kind of help families. I would totally agree with that, but also broaden it out to be even more ambitious and say that I think the most important law change that we could have is to recognise the right people as the legal parents of their children immediately from birth, um, you know, however that arrangement is is taking place. And, you know, I think the law, not it's not even just surrogacy, but assisted reproduction as a whole. So, you know, female same-sex couples who are conceiving together, transgender parents, people in um, relationships where they're co-parenting where a child has more than two parents you know families are 
becoming increasingly diverse and the law is really set up for this kind of model of two parents you know you start off with a mum and a dad and everything else has kind of been added into that so it's almost I think we need to sort of start again with a fresh piece of paper and say well what are we trying to achieve here and I think in cases where children are conceived through assisted reproduction it's about who intends to be the parents when that child is conceived so if we had really simple law that said where a child conceived through assisted reproduction it's the intended parents who are the legal parents. You know, it would take away a lot of these issues that are created for, for different sorts of family and, and families and put them in the same position as other families that, you know, have that right without even having to think about it. Honestly, thank you both so much. This is the first time in a podcast someone's brought a tear to my eye listening to you talk about those children, Natalie. So on that basis, I really hope that the two of you are going to come back when this bill is published and help us understand what, what's going on and any developments in the law at that stage. Hopefully I won't be like, or we won't be like Rose from Titanic saying it's been 84 years. <laughs> <laughs> just before we go i think we ought to say that for anyone who's listened to this and is interested in following it up or who has an occasional surrogacy case uh, and is worried about how to deal with it then andrew is the author of the excellent practical guide to the law in relation to surrogacy uh, by law brief publishing no doubt available in all good bookshops and if not on certain very large internet uh, retailers so that's definitely the place to go as a simple sort of one-stop guide to the surrogacy law thoroughly recommended thank you so and much. can i put the, a small plug as well that if we've persuaded anybody listening that the law needs to change or if you've had any cases as family lawyers where you've seen the law not working very well you know, please get involved because as you've heard, we've got a bit of a fight on our hands to, you know, make sure that this is given attention and that MPs vote in the right way and they understand the issues. So that if you go to the Brilliant Beginnings website and you click on the get involved button, there's some information about how to write to your MP and there's a petition you can sign and so on. So um, we need all of your help. So please, please get on board with it. Yeah, we'll, um, we'll link to the website on the um, show notes so people listening can find it easier. Oh, brilliant. Thank you. 